chapter. Man, it's, this is a fascinating book of the Bible. This is one of the most intriguing stories in all of Scripture. Um, we've been working our way through this book of the Bible for a couple of months now. It's a story, the story of Esther, that speaks to the paralyzation that comes in trying to sort out the will of God for our lives, which I know many of us have struggled with and maybe even struggle with presently. It's a story that speaks to the exhaustion that comes with attempting to control every situation and circumstance in life. It's a story that speaks to the despair that comes in those moments that we're not really sure that God is there. It's a story that speaks to the apathy that overcomes us in the midst of those incredibly mundane moments of life where it, it, it seems as though um, any sort of excitement is lacking. And it's ultimately the story of a promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God who will do whatever it takes to make sure that his redemptive purposes are carried out to their fulfillment. A God who doesn't just work through miracles, but who works through the ordinary events of billions of people over the course of thousands of years to fulfill uh, his promises and accomplish his purposes. A God who never stops working, as we've said throughout this series, through his unseen hand of providence for his glory and the good of his people. So let's get after it this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. Uh, this morning's passage, if you find the book of Psalms and you work your way to the left, you should find the book of Esther. Unless you have a chronological Bible, and then it would be a little further to the right of Psalms, but let's not get tedious, okay? Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and, and we'll dive in, and we'll get going this morning. God, thank you for this incredible book of the Bible. Thank you for, for giving us any sort of revelation of yourself. God, we certainly know something of who you are through creation, but apart from you revealing yourself to us in, in a specific way as you have in the scriptures, we would have no idea of what the hope of redemption truly is. So thank you for giving us your word. Thank you uh, for giving us this book of the Bible, which is, as we will see this morning, a microcosm of your cosmic, grandiose work of redemption that you decreed before the foundations of the world. God, I pray as a result of our time this morning that you would stir within us a joy, a rowdiness in response to who you are and what you've done for us as you've lavished your grace upon us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that, that we would be compelled as a result of soaking in the gospel to, to go out, as Jason said, and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and to, to, to be a, a trumpeteer of, of your message of hope and redemption in Christ, the good news of the gospel. God, would you use us to draw more people into this great work of redemption by your grace. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. All right, previously on Esther. We're, we're kind of at that point now where if you've ever watched a, a multi-season Netflix television show or I say that as if cable doesn't exist anymore. There's cable, right? It's not just Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu. Like, we still have cable. But regardless of your platform, if you've, if you've watched a multi-season television show before, you kind of get to that point where you can't just recap every episode, right? You're only going to get the highlights that are pertinent to the episode that you're about to watch. And that's kind of where we are in the story as we get to chapter 8. The, the story of Esther takes place 
against the backdrop of the Persian Empire, the largest, most powerful empire to exist up to that point in human history. Many people of Jewish descent find themselves among the population, having been scattered abroad as a result of the Babylonian exile. And as with any good story, there's conflict in the land, and it's the kind of conflict that poses a real threat to the Jewish people. What, what starts out as a relational conflict between two men, Mordecai the Jew and Haman the Agagite, That relational conflict leads to a call for the mass genocide of the Jewish people. It's really crazy. And Haman has the authority to bring about that mass genocide as the king's right-hand man. And the Jewish people are essentially told that they have 11 months to live. Meanwhile, it just so happens that Mordecai's cousin Esther has become queen of the Persian Empire. And so Mordecai leverages his relationship with the queen, calling for her to intervene on behalf of the Jews... And as a step toward that intervention, Esther exposes the wickedness of Haman. And in one of the great reversals of destiny in this story, Haman goes from the second most powerful man in all the kingdom to dying a shameful, humiliating death as he's executed on the very gallows that he had prepared for his enemy, Mordecai. If if you're a highlights person and you missed last week, you, you really need to go and listen to the podcast because last week's passage presented us with the most pivotal moment in this entire story, showing us how the unseen God is ultimately the one in control of where this story is going, the one who's ultimately at work in this incredible turning of the tables. As we pick up the story here in chapter 8, Haman has just breathed his last breath, and it appears as though the story has found some sort of resolution. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, and he had, uh, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And then Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Let me just stop there. So within the, the Persian Empire... The, the property and possession of condemned criminals were handed over to the crown. You like that phrase, the crown? You all watched the royal wedding yesterday morning, I know. And so you're like, yeah, the crown, I like that. And so what happens is Haman's estate becomes the king's to do what he will with it. And the king gives it to his queen and Esther gives it to Mordecai. Again, you see this reversal happening where Haman goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and Mordecai goes from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And that's not the only thing that Mordecai receives. Having been told by Esther how she and Mordecai are related to each other, the king gives Mordecai his signet ring, which is a symbol of executive power, as we've seen earlier in the story. It's the very same signet ring that the king had once given Haman, the very same signet ring that Haman used to pronounce the annihilation of the Jews back in chapter 3. If we only view this story from a, an incredibly low altitude, all seems to be right in the world. The characters whose well-being we care about the most are safe and sound as we get to, to chapter 8. But again, there's this bigger story unfolding here, a story involving God's covenant people and his work of redemption. Verse 3 says, Then Esther spoke again to the king, She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. 
And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So here in these verses, we're reminded that all is not right in the world. That at this point in the story, yes, Haman is dead, but the edict declaring the mass genocide of the Jewish people is still alive and well. And so Esther goes before the king as she's done before, and she begs the king to revoke this edict calling for the annihilation of the Jewish people. It's really fascinating to think about the, the fact that in the last chapter, you have Haman falling before Esther, begging for his own life, and we know how that story ends, right? Meanwhile, here you have Esther falling down before the king, but not to beg for her own life, but rather the lives of her people. As Ian Dugan says in his commentary, even though Esther had once concealed her identity because she only thought, her only thought was to protect herself, now that she had identified with her people, she had a new perspective that stretched beyond her own narrow self-interest. Salvation for herself was not enough if it came without salvation for her people. There's only one problem here. We've talked about this before in this series. The, the land of Persia is the land of irrevocable law. And the edict has already been sent out across the empire. That the only hope for the Jewish people is to have a new edict issued, one that would make the original edict difficult, if not impossible, to implement. And so the king essentially says to Esther and Mordecai, if you want to go about this, you have my blessing to establish this new edict. And you can, you can even sign it and seal it with my signet ring, just like the first edict. And so we're told in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of the people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Kind of crazy to think 
you're eight chapters into this story, and, and, and we've yet to see full resolution. It's kind of like one of those movies where everything's tied up in the last five minutes. We've seen God turn the tables in some pretty incredible ways thus far, and that gives us pretty strong indication as to how this story is going to end, even if you haven't looked elsewhere in Scripture beyond the book of Esther. But as it stands here in chapter 8, there's still coming a day of attack on the Jewish people. It's going to happen, a day that's already been established on the Persian calendar by way of Haman's edict. The, the new edict cannot revoke the old edict. The Jews will be attacked, but the new edict declares that the Jewish people are allowed to defend their own lives on that very day of attack, to destroy any who might seek to destroy them. The, the language here in chapter 8, it's almost verbatim the language of the first edict that we read about in chapter 3. Again, it's this declaration that the tables have ultimately been turned. Again, Ead Dugan in his commentary says, Those who, like Haman, sought to destroy the seed of the Jews in accordance with his edict would themselves share Haman's fate. The new edict, we're told, providing hope to the Jewish people. It goes out across the entire empire by way of the Pony Express. And verse 15 continues out in closing this chapter saying, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Again, you just continue to see this, this reversal sort of theme playing out here. In chapter 4, we saw the Jewish people weeping and fasting and lamenting, dressed in grief in response to the first edict. And here, in chapter 8, we see the Jewish people filled with gladness and joy, with Mordecai dressed not in grief but in royal splendor. You also see the city of Susa, which going back to the end of chapter 3 was thrown into confusion when the first edict was issued. While here, we see that very same city rejoicing. And there's something else fascinating happening at the end of this chapter. And I'll, I'll come back around to this toward the end of, of our time this morning. It says, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Some people, some scholars believe that this is talking about um, the conversion of many of the Gentiles across the empire, motivated by the fear of the Lord. They now see what, what the winning side truly is. And maybe there's some of that going on. But, but it seems to be a little bit more of an act of self-preservation rather than conversion. And, and that interpretation is actually in line with that continued theme of, of irony-saturated reversal where we once saw Esther hiding her Jewishness in an act of self-preservation we now see Gentiles attempting to hide their Gentileness in an act of self-preservation. That God continues to turn the tables as we continue through this story. This morning's passage, it's really fascinating. You have these two edicts. You have the, the irrevocable edict of death established by Haman calling for the mass annihilation of the Jewish people. And you have this counter-edict of life established by Mordecai, providing hope for the rescue of those very same Jewish people. And this story of Esther, as we've talked about over and over again throughout this series, is part of a greater narrative of redemptive history in which you also have two edicts. 
right? If you've read the Bible, you've studied it, you know there's the edict of death in Genesis 2 where we're told in the story of creation that the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, listen to this, you shall surely die. As the story goes, and many of us know it all too well, our first parents rebelled against God and the edict of death was put in motion. The Apostle Paul takes it a step further for us, declaring that the edict of death is over all of us. He says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, that Paul's saying we're all sinners by nature and choice, and the wages of sin is death. That there's an, an irrevocable edict of death that hangs over all of humanity. And God, who is true to his promises, cannot go back on his word. Just like the king, the edict of death that hangs over us is irrevocable. Like the Jewish people in Esther's day, we need another edict in order that we might be rescued from death, which is why it's so significant what God says in Genesis chapter 3, where he says to Satan, the one who deceived our first parents in the garden, he says, I'm sending a rescuer. I'm sending a descendant of Eve who will ultimately crush your head, yet it won't come without the bruising of the rescuer himself. If you've been around long enough, you know where I'm going with this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. We talked about this in our series through Hebrews back in the fall, where the author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, we're human. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That Jesus, who according to Luke chapter 3, whose lineage traces back to Eve, took on a killable body so that he could destroy Satan and defeat death through his own death. Genesis 3 truly gives us the first declaration of the counter-edict. The first proclamation of the gospel. Because God's edict of death cannot be revoked, Jesus took the edict of death upon himself in our place. As the sinless one died in the place of sinners. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, says it this way. She says, Just as Xerxes, king of Persia, could not simply rescind the first decree of death, God, king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. Instead, he issues a counter-decree of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's irrevocable decree of death and destruction has been countered by his decree that all who believe in his son should not perish under his wrath but be delivered into eternal life. Is that not incredible? Like, think about how the Bibles weave together as this gloriously beautiful literary tapestry. You have the story of Esther, which is simply a microcosm of the redemptive plan of God on a cosmic level. God's plan to rescue us from the, the edict of death that hangs over us as sinners, declaring life everlasting by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. So that if you're a Christian, just like the Jewish people in Esther chapter 8, you're no longer condemned by the edict of death. You've been rescued. That's something to celebrate. And that's certainly one of the takeaways from a passage like this. We've been rescued from the edict of death that... Uh, that hung over us as sinners, brought from death to life by way of the edict of Jesus Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it again. 
we the church should be a really rowdy bunch. And that's one of the simple takeaways from Esther chapter 8. But coming back to the story, I think there's something else for us to consider here. Let me, let me reread that Ian Duguid quote that I shared earlier with you where he says this. Even though Esther had once concealed her identity because her only thought was to protect herself, now that she had been identified with her people, she had a new perspective that stretched beyond her own narrow self-interest. Salvation for herself was not enough if it came without salvation for her people. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. Would have been really easy to just go about life. For Mordecai to enjoy the spoils of of the estate that he had been given, along with the power associated with being second in command to the king. For Esther to have enjoyed her newfound freedom, no longer feeling the need to conceal her identity as a Jewish woman. And the king himself would have been perfectly fine with that. If we can be honest for a moment, is that not how at times we view the Christian life? Having personally been delivered from the edict of death that, that hung over us, yet easily forgetting that there are people around us in need of that same deliverance. Both Esther and Mordecai knew that it would have been crazy, crazy absurd to think, well, I've been delivered, and that's really all that matters. In a world in which millions of Jews stood under the threat of imminent death, and the truth is that you and I are constantly surrounded by people who stand under that same threat still under the edict of death. C.S. Lewis says it in the most sobering way that I can imagine. I've shared this quote before, but I I can't find a better one, so I'm just going to come back to it. In his great work entitled The Weight of Glory, he says, quote, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's talking about the glorified version of who we are in Christ. Or else, he says, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Lewis goes on to say, there are no ordinary people. That includes every one of you in this room. There are no ordinary people. He says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations Cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals, he says, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What a sobering thought. That though we will all die unless Jesus returns first, we will all live forever. Some will live as everlasting splendors, basking in the presence of King Jesus forever, while others will live as immortal horrors, separated from God forever in an eternal nightmare, a nightmare that offers no hope of waking up. So let me just stop there and say, again, if you're a Christian, praise God for calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Praise Jesus that he refused to stand by and watch you be destroyed. Praise Jesus that he took the edict of death that hung over you upon himself. Praise Jesus that like Esther, he pled with the Father, if I have found favor in your sight, if my sacrifice is pleasing in your eyes, then save my people. Praise Jesus for your rescue. We should be all the more rowdy than anything we see at the end of chapter 8 as we see the Jewish people celebrating. But like Esther and Mordecai, let's acknowledge that you and I have been given a far more expansive mission than we oftentimes embrace. We've been, we've been commissioned to carry forth the life, uh, life-giving edict of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world filled with people who stand condemned under the edict of death. That, that you and I, we're, we're the Pony Express. And, and, and the application is not go get a horse, by the way. Like, th- this might be the closest thing that you'll find if you're looking for biblical warrant to do that than the creation mandate to exercise dominion over all of creation. But, but it's, a, it's a go and tell that we've been given good news that far out, outshines the news that traveled through the Persian Empire. We have the good news of the gospel, deliverance for people who will turn to Jesus with nothing more than their sin and the empty hands of faith. That the, the idea of, of an edict... It is not that it's communicated by way of osmosis, nor is it simply communicated by the way we live our lives. None of us have ever turned on uh, a newscast and learned the headlines by way of the character of the newscaster. That's never happened. It's not to say that the way we live isn't intended to authenticate our message and, and bring some sort of um, consistency to what we're saying, what we're proclaiming, but anytime we turn on the news, It's been to hear someone speak. The gospel, the edict of life in Jesus Christ is meant to be spoken. It's meant to be taken out, carried forth uh, um, among uh, all who don't know and love Jesus who are still under the edict of death. And and again, it's it's not good advice. It's good news. The word gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism. It means good news, not good advice, not if we will live this way and don't live that way, God will feel this way about us. But rather, Jesus has done everything necessary to accomplish our redemption. It is finished. It's been done. And now we go out and declare this finished work of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. We are the pony Express. And so let me be the Pony Express for a second and actually model this to say with, with boldness and humility, if you're not a Christian, the Bible declares that you are currently positioned under the edict of death that God pronounced in Genesis chapter 2, a sinner in desperate need of rescue. And self-rescue is not an option. Again, we see it in the garden. Adam and Eve attempt to clothe themselves in fig leaves, this self-wrought attempt at covering their sin and shame, and God declares the effort to be futile. In fact, what does he do toward the end of Genesis chapter 3? We see him clothe the couple in animal skins, right? Which begs the question, where did those skins come from? How do you come up with animal skins? And the answer, very simply, is you sacrifice an animal. The shedding of blood, the offering up of a life. The author of Hebrews says it in chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That not only is is God's provision in the garden a declaration that self-rescue is a futile effort, God's provision in the garden is also a forecasting of how he intends to make good on his life-giving edict. Namely, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who took the edict of death upon himself in our place as the sinless one died in the place of sinners. If you're not a Christian, you are currently positioned under the edict of death 
that God pronounced in Genesis 2. And self-rescue is not an option. That's the bad news. The good news, that you've already heard it this morning, is that rescue is yours in Jesus Christ. That Jesus gave his life for you so that you might not perish, but know everlasting life and joy in him. And so I invite you right now, if you're not a Christ follower, to embrace the good news of his death on the cross for your sins. To turn to him and trust in him for salvation. To know the joy that comes in knowing him and the deliverance that's yours in him. And and listen, I said I was going to come back around to the the end of chapter 8. And and here's where I want to do that. That good news of the gospel, um, that goes for the pretenders as well. People who are pretending to be something that they're not. Like those Gentiles across the Persian Empire who declared themselves Jews in the name of self-interest. This is, this is, if you haven't figured this out yet, you're, you're living in the, the epicenter of cultural Christianity. Let's not pretend that there's not some pretending going on in our context. But the reality of, of what God declares in the scriptures is you cannot pretend your way into the kingdom. Can't be done. Which makes it all the more glorious that Jesus died for pretenders too. If you're a Christian in name only, if you're really good at checking all the appropriate boxes, having the appearance of godliness but no true abiding intimate relationship with Jesus, the life-giving edict of the gospel is for you too. It's one of the biggest reasons we moved here. The question is, will you step out from behind that silly mask and declare your deep need for Jesus, if that's you. And Christian, that's your message to share too. The Pony Express is not just for pastors, it's for all of us. Which is why I'm, I'm so grateful for, for people like Sarah. And listen, you don't have to go to the darkest of the dark places. Your, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family members, they need Jesus too. Everywhere we go, breathing the air of the gospel, the edict into people's lives. But it begins with our own celebration. If it becomes stale to us, then we're not going to declare it to other people. We we need to constantly be soaking in the gospel of Jesus Christ such that our response is what we see at the end of chapter 8 among the Jewish people. One of light and joy and gladness. And then not to keep that to ourselves, but to take that, the greatest edict the world has ever known, the good news of hope in Jesus Christ, and to get rowdy in celebrating that and declaring it into the lives of other people. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a few different ways. James and the band are going to come back up. We're going to continue to worship through song. There's an opportunity to get a little rowdy, maybe a little louder than we're accustomed to for a few minutes. Embarrass ourselves just a little bit because of how great God is and what he's done for us. There will be people in the back who, who are available to pray with and for you. Uh, if you want to take advantage of, of that on our prayer team, they have lanyards they'll be wearing so you can know who they are. If anything strikes a chord with you in light of us opening this morning's passage and you want to take advantage of prayer, you can do that. We'll also worship through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And I think the preparation to come and receive is pretty simple this morning, right? To stop for a moment and and express deep gratitude and joy over the fact that God made a way for us to be rescued from the edict of death that hung over us in Christ Jesus.